This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Kevin Seitz and Alexandra Spicer and colleagues entitled, Individualized Treatment Effects of Bougie versus Stylet for Tracheal Intubation in Critical Illness. I'm joined today by the co-lead author of the study, Dr. Kevin Seitz, a clinical fellow in pulmonary and critical care at Vanderbilt, and the co-senior author, Matthew Chirpek, an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Great. Well, I'd like to start off by kind of describing your study. Your study is a secondary analysis of the Bougie trial, which tested Bougie versus Stylet for intubation. But before we get into that study, I think we should probably discuss the relevant background. Could you tell me a little bit about the Bougie trial? Absolutely. For those who aren't familiar, uh, as background, endotracheal intubation for critically ill adults comes with serious risks like hypoxemia or cardiovascular collapse. And those risks increase if an operator needs multiple attempts to complete the intubation. So as operators set up to do the procedure to try to avoid those complications, they face a lot of decisions about the best way to do it. And the key decision for the Bougie study occurs um, after laryngoscopy, when the operator gets a view of the vocal cords. And the question, the key question is what tools should they pass into the trachea first? The most commonly used device is the endotracheal tube itself, which is usually stiffened by a removable malleable stylet. Another option is to start with a thin, flexible plastic device called the tracheal tube introducer, or a bougie, and using that to pass through the vocal cords first. Historically, bougie wasn't used very often for first attempt by most operators, but there was some emerging evidence that it might be associated with higher rates of success, which was really intriguing and provocative. And so the bougie trial was designed to test whether using the bougie increased the likelihood of successful intubation on the first attempt when compared with the endotracheal tube and the stylet. And this was done as a multi-center randomized trial conducted in academic ICUs and emergency departments by our Pragmatic Critical Care Research Group. And the primary trial manuscript was just published last year. You've got such a great pragmatic trials group. It's uh, really done some amazing work. The prior trial that kind of informed this, and the one that got me really excited about Bougie was the 2018 single center beam trial that was actually done by that same lead author. And that study found a high initial success rate with Bougie, I think 98% success rate. And Stylet was about 87%. Although those were still rather both higher than what we saw in the Bougie trial. Why do you think there was a difference between that single center and the, and the multi-center study? Yeah, so the BEAM trial's first author is Brian Driver, and he and Matt Precker at Hennepin County Medical Center have been really leaders in this space and in our trials group. So huge thanks to them for, for all the work that they've done in this. And the BEAM trial compared the use of the same tools, as you said, the bougie and the endotracheal tube with Stylet, and they found the bougie increased the likelihood of success in the first attempt, but that was a single center trial, a unique center, which kept their findings from being generalizable. For those who aren't familiar, the ED at Hennepin, where they did that trial, is an outlier in that they have an outstanding training program in airway management, and they've historically taught the use of bougie on the first attempt. It's what their operators know best. So there were special contexts and special operators. 
Uh, that success rate that you quoted there of 98% in the Bushi group is really exceptional. And I think we should all aspire to that. Regarding the Stylet success rate there, they use a slightly different outcome definition from the Bougie trial. Uh, if you reanalyze the Bougie trial using that same outcome, the success rate is really comparable at 88%, uh, very similar to that 87% in the Stylet group in the BEAM trial. No, that's a really good point, Kevin. What, what about the differences in location? I noticed that the original BEAM study was ED only, and the Bougie study that we're kind of talking about is both ED and ICU. That's right. So the BEAM trial was not only single center, being a single hospital, single training program, it was also limited just to the emergency department. And intubation of critically ill adults, as we know, happens in the ED and in the ICU. And there are a lot of things that are different between those two settings. But we think that techniques should translate from one setting to the other. So it was important in the design of the Bougie trial to enroll patients in both emergency departments and ICUs at different centers for a more generalizable Bougie trial. So it seems like the 2021 Bougie trial, in, in that study, both arms, either Bougie or Stylet, had pretty similar rates of success. But you and your group thought there might be more to that story. Could you explain why we should think beyond just reporting those average treatment effects? In the Bougie trial, as you said, there was no difference overall in the incidence of the primary outcome in each group. And this, this type of neutral result with no average treatment effect is unfortunately pretty common in critical care trials. And I think it brings up a disconnect in the way that we generate evidence and how we use it that led us to uh, do this secondary analysis. The findings of randomized trials are usually reported as average treatment effects over a whole study population. That's how we get our evidence. But as clinicians, we want to personalize care at the bedside to think about how patients' individual characteristics might affect or predict their response to a treatment. And this concept of heterogeneity of treatment effect, that is that different patients might respond to treatments differently from one another, isn't a new idea. But the traditional method that we have to look for this in clinical trials is with subgroup analyses. And these are undeniably clunky. <laughs> We test subgroups one at a time looking for a treatment effect. And we, in order to do that rigorously, we need to pre-specify those subgroups. And we can't test too many to avoid a spurious positive finding by chance. So ultimately, in the future of critical care research, we need research that can estimate treatment effects in a way that's both rigorously evidence-based, but also personalized for individual patients. And in the Bougie trial, there was not a significant treatment effect for the bougie overall, nor was there a treatment effect in any of the pre-specified subgroups. But that need to bridge the gap between the overall trial result and the dream of more personalized evidence was the motivation behind this. Are there some patients for whom a bougie or a stylet would have had a higher rate of success? And can we find evidence for that in the randomized trial data that we have? Lucky for us, modern data science really has the tools to start thinking that way with rigorous methods. And so this collaboration with Dr. Tripek and Alex Spicer and their team uh, was so interesting, really provocative and, and really rewarding. I really like the point you make that tension between sort of like generalizable versus personalized medicine. So actually, Matt, you and your group were trying to estimate those treatment effects for uh, each individual using kind of machine learning approach. And I guess maybe for the benefit of not just our viewers, but also me, how, how would this machine learning approach differ or how, what's the main difference between that and other assessments of heterogeneity of treatment? So that's a great question. I think the concept of individualized treatment effects and the concept of heterogeneity of treatment effect are 
different concepts, but they're highly interrelated. So when we're using machine learning algorithms to predict individualized treatment effects, at the end of the day, we essentially, for each patient in the study, will have the predicted benefit or harm for the intervention in that trial cohort. Then you can look at the overall individualized treatment effect estimates in the study. And if there's a high amount of variability, then we have heterogeneity treatment effect. But if we have very little variability, for example, maybe all the treatment effects are very close to zero, so there really wasn't much heterogeneity, then your model might actually work well and, I, and I enable, is able to predict individualized treatment effects. But in that case, there would be no or very little heterogeneity of treatment effect. So luckily, when we apply these methods to the Bougie trial, we were actually able to identify not only that our model was accurately predicting individualized treatment effects, but also there was quite a bit of heterogeneity in those treatment effects as well. That's a very succinct summation and, and very informative. You know, one of the things I've always been fascinated about was feature selection or variable selection with machine learning models. So you used patients that were enrolled in the first half of the Bougie trial to train the model. And then the patients that were enrolled in the second half were used as the validation cohort. But how did you actually go about selecting those model predictors for the training? So yeah, this is a very important part of the process. What we did first was to identify what are all the baseline characteristics that we had available to potentially use in the model. The second thing we did then was we looked at the missing rates of those variables, and then we removed variables at a high rate of missing values. Then after that, we ended up with a number of variables that potentially had categories that either had very few members in some of the categories or some variables that were essentially capturing very similar concepts. And so what we did was we worked with the clinical trial experts from the Bougie study in order to identify what variables might be able to be combined together. So at the end of the day, the variable selection for the model was really a collaboration between the data scientists and the clinical trialists. Now, that's always a good approach to ensure face validity. I was hoping you could walk us through your approach. You employed a causal forest algorithm to predict those individual differences. Can you kind of explain how you how you went through that? So causal forests are an extension of the popular machine learning algorithm, Random Forest, which some of the listeners may have heard about before. It was developed by Su Susan Athey and colleagues a few years ago. And so with classic Random Forests, you are essentially creating these individual decision trees. And those trees are developed by splitting your variables. For example, age over 65 can go one direction and your patients with an age less than or equal to 65 might go a different direction down the tree in order to predict an outcome like you know, ICU mortality. Here with causal forests, these individual trees are the basis of the causal forest algorithm but what they're trying to do is to actually split the variables in the data set, those baseline predictor variables, in order to optimize the heterogeneity of treatment effect. And at the end of the day, the predictions from the causal forest algorithm is essentially a collection of all the individual decision trees in the model. So these causal forest algorithms are really becoming popular outside of medicine and have been used for years outside of medicine. And then our group and others have been using it more, more commonly here in medical applications as well. And we found them to be quite successful type of algorithm to use for this purpose. The model that you guys used had a lot of feature variables. How do you avoid overfitting? So avo avoiding overfitting is certainly a really important aspect of developing machine learning algorithms that can generalize to other settings. 
essentially overfitting is when your algorithm is being fit to both the signal and the noise in your data set. And so when you evaluate it in that same data set, the model might look highly accurate, but when you try to generalize it to a new setting, the model's performance breaks down. And so the causal forest algorithm has some ways that can help limit the amount of overfitting. So one thing that it does natively is to take the ent entire training data and then it actually creates the individual trees only on a part of the training data. And then in another part of the training data, it then determines what the actual treatment effect prediction should be for those patients. In addition, we used cross-validation where we split the training data into multiple parts in order to optimize some of the hyperparameters or, or essentially the knobs of the model that essentially optimize the model's performance. And then finally, I think, and in, in most importantly, in the machine learning field in general, is that the only results we presented in the study were the standalone test set or the validation set, which were not used to develop the model. And that allows us to make sure that we're not presenting a model that is, that is overfit in the results. And our hope is that those validation results are going to be closer to what we might see in the future if we apply this algorithm to new cohorts down the road. Uh, so, so let's talk about your model. How did the model actually perform in the validation cohort? Yeah, so we were really excited to see that the model performed quite well in the validation cohort. Specifically, we were able to identify that there was statistically significant heterogeneity treatment effect in that validation cohort. And I think most importantly, we were also able to characterize the patients who may have seen a benefit from bougie versus those who could have benefited potentially from stylets. So we were happy to see that the model performed well in its overall ability to predict individualized treatment effects in the validation cohort. So let, let's actually talk about that. So Kevin, what patients are best suited for bougie intubation and which ones are best suited for stylet? Well, that really is the question that we're trying to address ultimately. But this study has some caveats with it. It's a post hoc secondary analysis with novel methods. And so as we were putting together the manuscript, we took a more conservative approach and focused more so on the methods but we also wanted to make sure that readers could understand the types of patients where the model correctly predicted that a bougie or a stylet would be better. And so before as any more, acknowledging that we need prospective validation before we can recommend applying this into practice. If we look at patients for whom the model predicted success was more likely with a stylet, those patients more often had difficult airway characteristics, they more often had obesity, and the operators had less experience with the bougie, all of which to our mind was more like structural or anatomic issues um, that favored a stylet. And then in contrast, those more likely to benefit from use of a bougie seem to have a worse severity of illness, things like Apache score and a higher FiO2, really more physiologic factors and very broad strokes. And these were certainly provocative findings that we were excited to see. So I'm curious, as both you and Matt had mentioned earlier, a lot of these factors were not significant when assessed individually. I'm wondering what's machine learning doing under the hood that uh, traditional analyses are not when we find these sort of significant factors? That's a great question. And I think the impressive feature power of this machine learning method is the ability to assess for these complex interactions between variables that we can't detect if we do a, a subgroup one by one 
traditional analysis. For example, in what context of other variables does something like obesity contribute to whether the patient benefits from the treatment or not? And these algorithms can statistically test that question thousands of times over, and it results in a more powerful analysis of those interactions than the typical single variable subgroups. So were any of these characteristics a surprise for you or any, any of them that were unintuitive? Well, I'll say two things. The first is that I was initially surprised by the importance of the physiologic variables in the model at all. I was thinking about intubation strictly as a tangible, structural, anatomic problem. But seeing the importance of the Apache score, the systolic blood pressure, the FiO2 was a sort of a wake-up call for me that those things absolutely affect the conduct of the procedure. The context and the process of intubating an unstable patient is absolutely different than a stable one. So, you know, why shouldn't those characteristics matter? And then secondly, this highlighted how it was really overly reductive to think about this as a strictly anatomic process. But in addition to that, it was a surprise that those difficult airway characteristics were more commonly found among patients who are more likely to benefit from use of a stylet. Um, so I think some of the some of the purported potential benefits of bougie are in those patients. And so uh, we found something that challenged the traditional thinking about use of a bougie. So you, your response kind of raises an interesting question. And one of those challenges, I think that's very common with interpreting machine learning models is that they typically give us these complex analyses that are based on decisions that are really hard to simplify. But often to make that model useful for the bedside clinician, we have to reduce dimensionality to the point where we're not really applying that same model, where we're just saying, hey, is this person got a high Apache or not, and not really thinking about the entire circumstance. So how do you think clinicians should interpret these complex models? So that's exactly right. And we took this issue really seriously. I think there are two major steps when we think about the way that clinicians would interpret these sorts of predictions in their, in their usual care. And the first are the inputs into the model. The algorithms that Dr. Chirpek and his team uses makes maximal use of all the data elements available. But the model, and, and that's what it takes to generate these individualized estimates for any future patient, reducing the number of inputs may or may not be possible. If we reduce the number of inputs, we may or may not retain the same predictive power from the, the model. So that's question number one that is that is yet unanswered by this study. And second, in terms of interpreting the output, the goal of this model is to augment what the clinician can do. So if we can prove that this algorithm is correct or this model is correct and truly predictive of which treatment, or in this case, use of a bougie would be better, how does the clinician use that information? These models don't provide with them a mechanistic explanation of how these different factors come together. And so implementation of that sort of guidance into care is an exciting next question. Yeah, and you, you've absolutely nailed it. I think we're all going to be very excited to see what the future holds with machine learning augmented decision-making process. My next question here would be for Dr. Chirpek. This paper that you and your group had uh, written raises a really important question about whether or not we are conducting clinical trials correctly. Right now, it costs a huge amount of money to conduct a trial, and then it's over, and it's usually a negative trial. And then we consider that study largely settled, assuming that it's a big enough end and that the methods were appropriate. But your study here suggests that perhaps we're missing some of these key treatment effects. And so I'm wondering, do we need to repeat the bougie trial now informed by these newer models, or do we need to re-examine other large negative trials? 
Yeah, so that's a great question. I think it, in my mind, it is really important to re-examine as many of these quote unquote negative clinical trials we've had in critical care in the past. Because at this point, we don't actually know how much heterogeneity of treatment effect is hiding behind these otherwise negative findings in these prior studies. It might be that most of the studies that we've done may have very little heterogeneity of treatment effect. But I think given what we've seen in Bougie, and I think with the potential of these algorithms, I think it's possible that we may find that we have a lot of heterogeneity of treatment effect across studies. If you think about a lot of the studies in critical care and, and the patient populations that they include, we're often talking about studies that include patients with you know, syndromes like ARDS, where we already know there's a lot of heterogeneity in the underlying patient population. So I do think that one of the important things that we can do in, as a field is to see in these prior studies how much heterogeneity of treatment effect were there and are, were we missing something in those studies. In addition, I do think these algorithms could be used to plan future studies. In some cases, we are running a smaller study, and then depending on those results, we are trying to generalize that into, into a bigger study. And I do think that these methods could be used in the planning of those future studies as well, because I think ultimately what we want to do is to try to find who are the patients who really could potentially benefit from these treatments that we're investigating. Well, so that's a great point when you talk about perhaps using that approach to find some undiscovered relationship and that might shape a future study. But one challenge that I seem to observe with uh, machine learning is it often requires a large and, and a rich data set. And so it seems like there would be challenges training these models on some of those smaller data sets. I'm wondering, how should we consider applying those methods to shape future studies when they require a large data set? And it's often unlikely that we get funding for a second larger study when we can barely afford the first one. That's a great question. So certainly having a large enough study with granular enough baseline characteristic collection is going to be critical for the success of these algorithms. But I do think at this point, we actually don't know how big a study needs to be before these causal machine learning approaches actually can work. In, in fact, some of these algorithms use simpler machine learning approaches like logistic regression, which are actually a lot less data hungry than methods based on random forests. So it is possible that even in smaller studies, there are potentially some things we can learn from those studies that we can help us plan future studies as well. So I do think at this point, the field, it's in the field, it's a great unknown uh, regarding, you know, the size of the study and how many baseline variables and what types of baseline variables we need to collect. And I'm really excited to see, you know, how these approaches might work in different settings. I think that's a great answer. And I think that we're probably going to see this over the next decade where there is a lot more enthusiasm for not only novel trial approaches, but also novel use of data to inform our trials. My last question here would be for Dr. Seitz. How has this study changed the practice of you or your co-authors? Do you do you intubate with a bougie or a stylet, or what do you do? It's always the right question to ask a trialist, I think. What do they do following the results of their study? Um, but uh, the short answer, I think, is no. And the reason for that is, I think, as exciting as the future looks for these methods and applying them and using them and bringing them back to the bedside, there are several steps in our science between demonstrating the model's abilities within the trial in a rigorous way here and using it at the bedside. So 
So I still use Stylet for most intubations and a bougie for special situations. And I fully acknowledge that those decisions are based on anecdotes and clinical reasoning for my training rather than robust evidence. But ultimately, I think to feel confident about applying the bougie model in practice, we'll need an external validation trial. And I think that's really the next step for these models generally to derive individualized treatment estimates in one trial and then apply them in the next trial for validation. So I'm excited to keep moving these methods and these, these questions forward. Well, I'm sure we will see more. Thank you so much. This has uh, been an outstanding uh, interview. This concludes our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Kevin Seitz and Dr. Matthew Chirpek, for a phenomenal discussion of their study on machine learning and the Bougie trial. And I think as clinical trials become more expensive, we're going to see more clever ways to use existing data to further our own knowledge. Congratulations, and thank you, Dr. Seitz and Dr. Chirpek. Thanks for having us. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine.